Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over Ether chapters 12 through 15. We're finishing up the book of Ether today. And we've been covering the Jaredites and their pride cycle and the role of wicked kings and secret combinations. And toward the end of this podcast and the book of Ether, we will talk about the complete collapse of the Jaredite civilization as recorded by Ether and abridged by Moroni. In chapter 12, Moroni takes a break from historical narrative to describe how remarkable the prophet Ether was and to discuss the role of faith and humility in the plan of salvation. Now, Ether was the last prophet of the Jaredite people at the time of the last king, Coriantumr. In verse 2, it says, And Ether was a prophet of the Lord. Wherefore, Ether came forth in the days of Coriantumr and began to prophesy unto the people, for he could not be restrained because of the Spirit of the Lord which was in him. This tells you what kind of prophet Ether was, that he couldn't be restrained because the Spirit of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, it says, For he did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. In other words, Ether was teaching the plan of salvation and that salvation came through Christ. But in order to qualify for salvation, we need to believe, we need to have hope, and we need to have faith. And that's what the bulk of this chapter is going to talk about. But I love how in verse 4 it talks about the anchor, the souls of men. President Hinckley said, We live in a world of uncertainty. For some, there will be great accomplishment. For others, disappointment. For some, much of rejoicing and gladness, good health and gracious living. For others, perhaps sickness and a measure of sorrow. We do not know. But one thing we do know, like the polar star in the heavens, regardless of what the future holds, there stands the Redeemer of the world, the Son of God, certain and sure as the anchor of our immortal lives. He is the rock of our salvation. Our strength, our comfort, the very focus of our faith. We learn in verse 5 that the people would not believe his prophecies. And then in verse 6, Moroni breaks the narrative a little bit and says, And now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. One of the best scriptures in all the Book of Mormon. So let's talk about faith. Elder Richard G. Scott said, You can learn to use faith more effectively by applying this principle taught by Moroni. Faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Thus, every time you try your faith, that is, act in worthiness on an impression, you will receive the confirming evidence of the Spirit. Those feelings will fortify your faith, As you repeat that pattern, your faith will become stronger. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, Preparatory faith is formed by experiences in the past, by the known, which provides a basis for belief. But redemptive faith must often be exercised toward experiences in the future, the unknown, which provides an opportunity for the miraculous. Exacting faith, mountain-moving faith, Faith like that of the brother of Jared precedes the miracle and the knowledge. He had to believe before God spoke. He had to act before the ability to complete that action was apparent. 
He had to commit to the complete experience in advance of even the first segment of its realization. Faith is to agree unconditionally and in advance to whatever conditions God may require in both the near and distant future. In verses 7 through 22, he gives many examples of faith. He gives examples of how Christ showed himself as a resurrected being to his fathers, about how Ammon was able to convert and help convert with the other sons of Mosiah, many of the Lamanites, about Moses bringing the children across the Red Sea on dry land. And he says in verse 18, And neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith, wherefore they first believed in the Son of God. Finally, he talks about how the brother of Jared was able to see the finger of the Lord and then to see the whole body of Christ. In verse 22, he says, And it is by faith that my fathers have obtained the promise that these things should come unto their brethren through the Gentiles. Therefore, the Lord hath commanded me, yea, even Jesus Christ. In his lectures on faith, Joseph Smith said, Faith is not only the principle of action, but of power also in all intelligent beings, whether in heaven or on earth. It is by faith that the words were framed, God spake, chaos heard, and worlds came into order by reason of the faith there was in him. So with man also, he spake by faith in the name of God, and the sun stood still. The moon obeyed, mountains moved, prisons fell, lions' mouths were closed, the human heart lost its enmity, fire its violence, armies their power, the sword its terror, and death its dominion. And all this by reason of the faith which was in him. Moroni, after having given so many examples of faith and all of these wonderful prophets whom he has studied and revered, he confesses his own weakness. In verses 23 through 25, he says, And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For, Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing. For thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. And thou hast made us that we could write but little because of the awkwardness of our hands. Behold, thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. For thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty even as thou art, under the overpowering of man to read them. Thou hast also made our words powerful and great even that we cannot write them, Wherefore, when we write, we behold our weakness and stumble because of the placing of our words, and I fear lest the Gentiles shall mock at our words. I love the Lord's response here in verses 26 through 28. And when I had said this, the Lord spake unto me, saying, Fools mock, but they shall mourn, and my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weakness. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness, that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Behold, I will show unto the Gentiles their weakness, and I will show unto them that faith, hope, and charity bringeth unto me the fountain of all righteousness. In the book True to the Faith, It says, to be humble is to recognize gratefully your dependence on the Lord, to understand that you have constant need for his support. Humility is an acknowledgement that your talents and abilities are gifts from God. It is not a sign of weakness, timidity, or fear. It is an indication that you know where your true strength lies. 
Elder Neal A. Maxwell said, when we read the scriptures of man's weakness, this term includes the generic but necessary weakness inherent in the general human condition in which the flesh has such an incessant impact upon the spirit. Weakness likewise includes, however, our specific individual weaknesses, which we are expected to overcome. Life has a way of exposing these weaknesses. When we are unduly impatient with an omniscient God's timing, we really are suggesting that we know what is best. Strange, isn't it? We who wear wristwatches seek to counsel Him who oversees cosmic clocks and calendars. Because God wants us to come home after having come more like Him and His Son, part of this developmental process of necessity consists of showing unto us our weaknesses. Hence, if we have ultimate hope, we will be submissive because, with His help, those weaknesses can even become strengths. It is not an easy thing, however, to be shown one's weaknesses, as these are regularly demonstrated by life circumstances. Nevertheless, this is part of coming unto Christ, and it is a vital, if painful, part of God's plan of happiness. In last month's General Conference, Elder Scott D. Whiting said, Trusted friends and family can help us see ourselves more accurately, but even they, as loving and helpful as they would like to be, can see things imperfectly. As a result, it is vital that we ask our loving Heavenly Father what we are in need of and where we should focus our efforts. He has a perfect view of us and will lovingly show us our weakness. Perhaps you will learn that you need greater patience, humility, charity, love, hope, diligence, or obedience, to name a few. Clearly recognizing our weaknesses and acknowledging them unto the Lord and asking the Lord to show us our weaknesses and where we lack so that we can make those weaknesses become strengths. Elder Gary Stevenson said, You might be thinking that you are no one special, that you are not all-star material, but that is not true. Don't you know that God has proclaimed the weak things of the world shall come forth and break down the mighty and strong ones? So, do you feel weak? Insignificant? Congratulations, you made the lineup. Do you feel unimportant? Inferior? You may be just who God needs. He can open doors and let us find strengths and abilities we never knew we had. The Lord's response is to make weak things strong. I'd like to read just a few scriptures that back up this concept that the Lord finds our weaknesses and can help us to be strong if we are humble. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jacob 4.7 says, The Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by His grace that we have power to do these things. Alma 26.12 says, I know that I am nothing as to my strength I am weak. Therefore I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God. For in His strength I can do all things. Finally, Moroni 10.32 says, If ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is His grace sufficient for you, that by His grace ye may be perfect in Christ. Moroni was able to testify of that in Moroni chapter 10 because of these words in verse 29. And I, Moroni, having heard these words, was comforted 
and said, O Lord, thy righteousness will be done, for I know that thou workest unto the children of men according to their faith. He gives another example, a remarkable example of faith when the brother of Jared moved a mountain, the mountain Zaron. In verses 32 through 37, he talks about Christ's love for us and what Christ did for us. And he says specifically that charity is the key. In fact, in verse 34, he says, And now I know that this love which thou hast had for the children of men, speaking of Christ, is charity. Wherefore, except men shall have charity, they cannot inherit that place which thou hast prepared in the mansions of thy father. Wherefore, I know by this thing which thou hast said, that if the Gentiles have not charity because of our weakness, that thou wilt prove them and take away their talent, yea, even that which they have received, and give unto them who shall have more abundantly. Elder Marvin J. Ashton said, Charity is perhaps in many ways a misunderstood word. We often equate charity with visiting the sick, taking in casseroles to those in need, or sharing our excess with those who are less fortunate. But really, true charity is much, much more. Real charity is not something you give away. It is something you acquire and make a part of yourself. And when the virtue of charity becomes implanted in your heart, you are never the same again. It makes the thought of putting others down repulsive. At the end of this chapter, Moroni bids farewell to the Gentiles and promises to see them at the judgment seat of Christ. And in verses 39 and 41, he testifies, And then shall ye know that I have seen Jesus, and that he hath talked with me face to face, and that he told me in plain humility, even as a man telleth another in mine own language concerning these things. And now I would commend you to seek this Jesus of whom the prophets and apostles have written, that the grace of God the Father, and also the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of them, may be and abide in you forever. And I love the word abide. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said, Abide in me is an understandable and beautiful enough concept in the elegant English for the King James Bible. But abide is not a word we use much anymore. So I gained even more appreciation for this admonition from the Lord when I was introduced to the translation of this passage in another language. In Spanish, that familiar phrase is rendered permanecer and me, like the English verb abide, permanecer, means to remain, to stay. But even English speakers like me can hear the root cognate there of permanence. The sense of this, then, is stay, but stay forever. In chapter 13, Moroni goes back to talking about Ether, and Ether saw the days of Christ and the establishment of a new Jerusalem that was beyond even our timeline. And let's establish some facts about this new Jerusalem. In verse 3, it says it will be the holy sanctuary of the Lord. In verses 4 through 6, it will be built upon the American continent for the remnant of the seed of Joseph. In verses 8 through 9, it talks about how it will be a holy city like the Jerusalem built unto the Lord. In verse 8, it says it will stand until the earth is celestialized. And in verse 10, it talks about how it will be a city for the pure and righteous. President Joseph Fielding Smith said the prevailing notion in the world is that this, the New Jerusalem, is the city of Jerusalem, the ancient city of the Jews, which in the day of regeneration will be renewed. But this is not the case. We read in the book of Ether that the Lord revealed to him many of the same things which were seen by John. Ether, as members of the church will know, 
was the last of the prophets among the Jaredites. And the Lord has revealed to him much concerning the history of the Jews and their city of Jerusalem, which stood in the days of the ministry of our Savior. In his vision, in many respects similar to that given to John, Ether saw the old city of Jerusalem, and also the new city which has not yet been built. And he wrote of them as follows, as reported in the writings of Moroni. In the day of regeneration, when all things are made new, there will be three great cities that will be holy. One will be the Jerusalem of old, which shall be rebuilt according to the prophecy of Ezekiel. One will be the city of Zion, or of Enoch, which was taken from the earth when Enoch was translated, and which will be restored. And the city of Zion, or New Jerusalem, which is to be built by the seed of Joseph on this, the American continent. So, brothers and sisters, there will be three major cities in the millennium. There will be the Old Jerusalem, which is in Israel. There will be the New Jerusalem, which will be built upon the American continent. And then there will be the city of Enoch. How exciting will that be to have a whole city return and be established in the face of the earth? And now, when you read about the city of Enoch being taken up, it was taken up land and people and everything. So that'll be interesting when it comes back down, land and people and everything. In verse 11, Moroni writes, And then also cometh the Jerusalem of old, and the inhabitants thereof. Blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they are they who are scattered and gathered in the four quarters of the earth, and from the north countries, and are partakers of the fulfilling of the covenant which God made with their father Abraham. So we're talking about gathering Israel for the new Jerusalem and for the old Jerusalem. In verse 12 it says, And when these things come, bringeth to pass the scripture which saith, There are they who were first who shall be last, and there are they who were last who shall be first. And he's about to talk about more, and he's forbidden. Just like Nephi, just like Mormon, just like all of the other prophets that were shown so many great and marvelous things that we're not allowed to see, we get ours through the book of Revelation of John, which is so difficult and hard to understand, but it is all there. And if we study it, we will get more eventually and in probably a clearer language than what we're used to. So not being able to talk more about this new Jerusalem and the coming of Christ the second time upon the face of the earth, he goes back to the record of the Jaredites and to their complete destruction. At this point in time, Ether is hiding in a cave to witness the destruction of the people. And he's hiding in that cave because the people want to kill him. He comes out during the day and he prophesies and then he goes back and he hides at night. And in verses 16 through 19, he describes this last king of the Jaredites. This is Coriantumr. In verse 16, he says, And now Coriantumr, having studied himself in all the arts of war and all the cunning of the world, wherefore he gave battle unto them who sought to destroy him. So he was a great warrior. He just wasn't a man of faith. He wasn't righteous. And who is Coriantumr mostly fighting with? Well, he's fighting with these secret combinations. In verse 18, it says, Wherefore it came to pass... In the first year that Ether dwelt in the cavity of Iraq, there were many people who were slain by the sword of those secret combinations, fighting against Coriantumr that they might obtain the kingdom. Finally, in verses 20 and 22, Ether is commanded to go to Coriantumr and call him to repentance and to warn him of complete destruction if he does not repent. Verse 20 says, And in the second year the word of the Lord came to Ether that he should go and prophesy unto Coriantumr that if he would repent, and all his household, 
the Lord would give unto him his kingdom and spare the people. Otherwise they should be destroyed, and all his household, save it were himself. And he should only live to see the fulfilling of the prophecies which had been spoken concerning another people receiving the land for their inheritance. And Coriantumr should receive a burial by them, and every soul should be destroyed, save it were Coriantumr. This is a very specific prophecy, which we, of course, know came true, because we know that he went and dwelt among the Mulekites, which you can read about back in the book of Mosiah. And because we know that happened, we know the end of the story that I'm about to tell. He did not repent, neither did his household. In other words, he ignored the warnings of a prophet of God. President Irene said, Looking for the path to safety in the council of prophets makes sense to those with strong faith. When a prophet speaks, those with little faith may think that they hear only a wise man giving good advice. Then if his counsel seems comfortable and reasonable, squaring with what they want to do, they take it. If it does not, they consider it either faulty advice or they see their circumstances as justifying their being an exception to the council. Those without faith may think that they hear only men seeking to exert influence for some selfish motive. Every time in my life when I have chosen to delay following inspired counsel or decided that I was an exception, I came to know that I had put myself in harm's way. Every time that I have listened to the counsel of the prophets, felt it confirmed in prayer, and then followed it, I have found that I have moved toward safety. In the rest of this chapter, and in chapter 14 and chapter 15, Moroni describes through the words of Ether what happened to Coriantumr and the destruction of the Jaredite people. And it starts with a man named Sherid who beats Coriantumr and takes his kingdom for a little while. But the sons of Coriantumr battle back against Sherid and return the kingdom back to their father. And these battles go back and forth and back and forth, and Sherid's winning sometimes and Coriantumr's winning sometimes. And eventually Coriantumr kills Sherid, but Sherid wounded Coriantumr and he was unable to fight in the wars coming up for the space of several years. In chapter 14, it's all about this major war. And oh, by the way, remember that slippery property curse that we read about in Mormon? Well, this is happening here amongst the Jaredites too. Well, the brother of Sherid rises up, his name is Gilead. And he comes out and wins a few battles, and he takes over the throne. And this is thanks to the secret combinations who are helping him gain power. And he's doing pretty well until his high priest, who's also in the secret combination, decides to slay him while he's sitting upon the throne. And his name is Lib. And Lib rules, and he battles, and Coriantumr battles him, and it's really nasty until eventually Coriantumr kills him too. And that brings up his brother, whose name is Shiz. And Shiz is a really bad dude. And it says in verses 17 through 18, Now the name of the brother of Lib was called Shiz. And it came to pass that Shiz pursued after Coriantumr, and he did overthrow many cities. And he did slay both women and children, and he did burn the cities. And there went a great fear of Shiz throughout all the land. Yea, a cry went forth throughout all the land, Who can stand before the army of Shiz? Behold, he sweepeth the earth before him. Well, these horrible battles continue, and eventually Coriantumr is injured to the point where he cannot fight anymore. In chapter 15, Coriantumr remembers the words of Ether and writes to Shiz and tells him that he will give up the kingdom if Shiz will spare the people. But Shiz only agrees if he can kill Coriantumr with his own sword. Well, the people refuse this, and they begin to flee. 
And they flee to a land that's called Ripleyancum, which is interpreted as many waters. So if we're paying attention, it looks like the Jaredites are going to be destroyed at about the same place where Mormon and Moroni had their final stand against the Lamanites. And so if that's the case, we're talking about upstate New York and current world today. So this many waters or this Ripleyancum is probably the Great Lakes if they were around at that time, which there's no reason to believe that they weren't. Anyway, just a little bit of a side note. They fight to the death over many years. And according to President Romney, almost 2 million soldiers die in this. And that doesn't include the women and children and and the men who are not fighting. Finally, we get down to about 32 of the soldiers of Shiz versus 27 of Coriantumr soldiers. And they're battling and they're killing off each other. And they're all dead except for Coriantumr and Shiz. And Shiz faints. And when Coriantumr is rested on his sword a little bit, he raises it up and he cuts off the head of Shiz. And that is the end of Shiz. And at this point, the prophecy has been fulfilled by Ether that Coriantumr would live to witness the entire destruction of his people. He rests for a little bit. He falls down to the earth as if he has no life. And at this point, it says in verse 33, And the Lord spake unto Ether and said unto him, Go forth. And he went forth and beheld that the words of the Lord had all been fulfilled. And he finished his record. And the hundredth part I have not written. And he hid them in the manner that the people of Limhi did find them. Verse 34 says, Now the last words which are written by Ether are these. Whether the Lord will that I be translated or that I suffer the will of the Lord in the flesh, it mattereth not. If it so be that I am saved in the kingdom of God. Amen. It's very similar to what Moroni said in the Book of Mormon when he's talking about his last days here upon the earth. Brothers and sisters, here we get a condensed version of the pride cycle of a people who were righteous, who were very righteous and led by very righteous men who fell victim to pride and eventually were wiped off of the face of the earth. They didn't heed the prophets They didn't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't repent or try to improve themselves. Brothers and sisters, many of us are running this very same risk today in rejecting the prophets and in not serving the God of the promised land who is Jehovah or Jesus Christ. We must repent. We must look at our weaknesses and let God make those weaknesses become strengths. I promise that if we do so, we will be spared And we will be caught up in the new Jerusalem that we will build and we will be here upon the earth as Christ reigns personally. I testify of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thank you and have a blessed day.